my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Britain's authoritarian creep, part two. It's a move towards authoritarianism. It's uh, part of a trend that unfortunately we see in Hungary, we saw in America until the last election, an attempt to crush protest, to crush dissent to crush people who want to tell a different story from the story that the government wants to tell. And investigative journalists, it's in their nature to try and scrutinise the government, find out what it's doing that it doesn't want us to know, find out the wrongdoings that it is doing that they don't want us to discover. So we are the enemy. You know, we're the enemy within. We'll hear about plans for a new law that would put investigative journalists on a par with spies working for a hostile power. Reporters, editors and whistleblowers who reveal government secrets could face 14 years in prison. And beware, if you want to vote against the people behind these plans, you'll need photo ID at the ballot box. By asking people to bring along a photographic ID, you're already discriminating some of the hardest hit groups in society. You know, you have to pay for a passport, you have to pay for a driving licence. So effectively, by requiring people to bring those types of ID to the polling station in order to exercise their democratic rights, you're basically putting up a paywall around the ballot box. All that to come. First, a reminder that the Byline Times isn't funded by an oligarch, a tycoon, a hedge fund billionaire or a flag-waving entrepreneur with an offshore account. We rely on people like you taking out a subscription to our monthly paper, the Byline Times. And that also pays for our brilliant news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, which is free for everyone to read, and this podcast. Get details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, no apologies for returning to the subject of Britain's authoritarian creep. This stuff really matters. In March, we reported on the police, crime, sentencing and courts bill, which, according to the pressure group Liberty, represents one of the most serious threats to human rights and civil liberties in recent history. The bill allows for new stop-and-search powers and a significant increase in the state's authority to gather data on its citizens. The Home Secretary and the police would also gain sweeping powers to restrict protests, and those that go ahead could become illegal if they're deemed to be too noisy, and even if they involve just one person. We spoke to Byline Times writer Sean Norris and Labour MP Richard Bergen. I think there's a very worrying and very concerning authoritarian creep, authoritarian drift happening. I think we're entering a situation where the government is very aware that with the economic situation that's developing, they will be deciding to go ahead with um, measures, provisions, policies, decisions, which people won't like very much. And so at the same time, uh, I think they're They've taken the decision to restrict people's ability to campaign and protest against those forthcoming decisions. And that's really, really concerning. So you think this is actually a calculation that they will introduce policies which will be unpopular and anticipating that they're seeking to clamp down on the protests that might ensue? When you look at what the Conservatives have done since 2010 in terms of restricting the right to strike. They didn't make it illegal to go on strike, but they made it very, very hard. They put a number of hurdles in place. And with the police, crime, sentencing and courts, but you see exactly the same thing in terms of 
the right to protest. A protest can take place just as long as it's not too noisy, just as long as it doesn't cause too much nuisance, just as long as it doesn't seriously annoy anyone, just as long as it's not too near to Parliament. In other words, protests can go ahead just as long as they, uh, they don't do what protests are meant to do. And in the 1980s, we saw it as well. In the political climate we had then, there was an authoritarian drift under the Thatcher government. I think we're seeing that now in the 2020s as well. Absolutely. I think it is a really concerning creep of authoritarianism. As Richard says, you know, protests are meant to be noisy. They're meant to be disruptive. That's how you get noticed. In the early 2010s, I organised a series of Reclaim the Night marches and we had drums, we had dancers, we had chants, we had loudspeakers. Of course, we were disruptive. We probably annoyed people. The people we definitely annoyed were those who wanted to protect violent men and protect a patriarchal society that allows for men to be violent against women. So, you know, as soon as you start saying that protests cannot be annoying, they cannot be noisy, they cannot be disruptive, the people who you are actually protecting are those who uphold the status quo that is causing harm to those who are actually doing the protesting or the movements that they're protesting on the behalf of. Sean Norris and Richard Bergen MP. In the same episode of the podcast, we also discussed the new Covert Human Intelligence Sources or spy cops bill that allows agents of the state and informants to commit crimes with impunity. This codifies a situation that has been ongoing since the 60s, whereby the police have infiltrated groups they believed, often mistakenly, to be a threat to society. Mike Schwartz is a solicitor at Hodge, Jones and Allen. What's happening really is um, we're moving from the Wild West to the Stasi, Wild West in the sense that unregulated undercover police have been able to do what they want. And now with this new bill, it's going to be set in stone in regulations. But just because it's set in legislation doesn't make it better, quite the opposite. Because the bill is so sweeping in the powers it gives to the police and those who supervise them, real lack of judicial supervision and so on. All it is is rubber stamping a terrible process. Mike Schwartz, and that episode of the Byline Times podcast is still available online. Just type Byline Times podcast authoritarian creep into your search engine. So why authoritarian creep part two? Well now this supposedly freedom-loving government is planning an overhaul of the Official Secrets Act. And one of its most alarming provisions is a clause that would make it illegal to disclose state secrets even if it's in the public interest. In fact, that defence would no longer be available to journalists or the whistleblowers who'd brought them a story. I've been discussing this with Myrian Jones, who won awards for his work on Newsnight and Panorama. He's now Investigations Editor at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. And first, Byline Times Editor, Hadeep Matharu. The changes that are being proposed by the Home Office would have quite an alarming impact on investigative journalism in this country if they were to go ahead. So what Pretty Patel's department is proposing is to remove the public interest defence to breaches of the Official Secrets Act and almost put sort of journalists who deal with, quote, unauthorised disclosures on par with those committing espionage or looking to harm the interests of the British state. And This is extremely worrying because the impact that it will have with regards to whistleblowers coming forward to 
exposed wrongdoing in public life, people in positions of power, the impact it will have on sources who would or probably would not now be more willing to corroborate stories. All of this is going to potentially impact investigative journalism and the bread and butter of it in in quite serious ways, increasing the penalties from two years in prison to 14 years in prison. So there is a tone coming from the Home Office, which is, it is draconian, which is authoritarian. It is, I would argue, a clampdown on investigative journalism, because as we know, investigative journalism is often poking around dark corners that people in positions of power don't want you to do. So it's very worrying in terms of the chilling effect it could have. And I think quite rightly, many people in the industry, not only investigative journalists, outlets, campaigners, you know, the mainstream media, there has been a lot of public debate about these proposals and what they could mean. And I think that is an important step that actually, it's not just investigative outlets such as Byline Times or the Bureau of Investigative Journalism or Open Democracy, a more independent sector that is raising concerns. It is established media in, in the mainstream as well, because it is really concerning and, and of course feeds in to this wider environment that we're seeing emanating from the Home Office but Boris Johnson's government more widely, paradoxically in the name of freedom, clamping down on rights. And it's part of a wider pattern of that happening, which is deeply concerning, considering we live in a democracy. And those are rights that we should never take for granted. And journalism is a key pillar of democracy. It is meant to be the fourth estate So in that sense, I think the democratic erosion that is being attempted here is really something that should alarm us all. Marion, I'm intrigued by any proposal that manages to unite the Byline Times, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, the Sun and the Daily Mail (laughs) under one common cause. But all of those august organisations are opposing these proposals. In your long and distinguished career, what kind of scoops might it have prevented? Well, I think the key thing here is that the government are saying there should be no distinction between espionage and whistleblowing. Now, that is an incredible step to take. Obviously, for years now, the Official Secrets Act has been dead in terms of real whistleblowing, in terms of journalists digging into stories because juries would not convince. There was a public interest defence. Technically, that was taken away after the Clive Ponting case uh, in 1989. But in effect, public interest cases, when we are doing stuff that's important, the Official Secrets Act is not something that I've had to worry about my entire working career. And now what the government is saying is that not only will we be in the same position, whistleblowers will be in the same position as spies, we could go to prison for 14 years for telling you what's happening. So I'll give you an old example of mine when I was looking at Trident nuclear submarines. I discovered that our Trident nuclear submarines could launch their nuclear missiles and start a nuclear war without any coded message going to them to say they had to do that. It was all down to the crew of the submarine. And that was a very, very dangerous situation to be in. You know, we've all seen the James Bond films where people have to put in 
different codes in order to make things work. In effect, a British nuclear submarine crew could have decided to launch a nuclear war off their own bat. Now, that's obviously serious and concerning. And that story, for sure, would come under the purview of the new Official Secrets Act that the British government is putting in. The people who talked to me, myself, everyone who worked on that story, we would all have been subject to the possibility of 14 years imprisonment just for raising a really serious matter of public concern. And you mentioned Clive Ponting there. He was the British civil servant who leaked stories about the truth of the Belgrano affair. The Belgrano was a, an Argentinian warship which was sailing away from British-imposed exclusion zone near the Falklands, but which was nevertheless sunk. Clive Ponting blew the whistle on that. There's no doubt that in the letter of the law, he had breached the Official Secrets Act, but the jury at the time refused to convict him, believing presumably that it was in the public interest for him to have done what he did. That's right. And then what happened was the government brought in a new version of the Official Secrets Act off the back, which technically got rid of the public interest defence. But in practice, everyone knew that a jury wouldn't convict. Many of you will have seen the Catherine Gunn film last year about the Iraq war whistleblower from GCHQ. They tried to use the Official Secrets Act against her, but the case collapsed before it came to court because they realised in 2003 that a jury would not convict. If it was in the public interest, whatever the detail of the law said, they would not convict. Whereas this is now an attempt to completely revolutionise bring in a new Official Secrets Act, which says whistleblowing is exactly the same as spying for Russia. And that is a huge move, plus obviously the increased sentences. Yes, because the point is that the defence of public interest, if you were to go to court and the judge said to your lawyers, what is your defence? Well, our defence, Your Honour, is public interest. That defence would be removed in law and therefore you would be, if you were committed the offence, as it would then become of whistleblowing or reporting the story of a whistleblower, you would be guilty. End of. Yeah, and it's typical of this government's approach to a lot of things, so that if you're against them, if you are scrutinising them, raising criticisms, you are the enemy. And here they are literally saying that. No distinction between espionage and serious unauthorised disclosures which are not spying, which are whistleblowing, which are telling people things they need to know. So you, Adrian, or you, Hardeep, if you run a story which you think is in the public interest, which is leaked government material, you will be treated the same way as a Russian spy or a Belarusian spy or somebody who's trying to destabilise the whole country uh, who is a foreign agent. And Ardeep, I can't imagine what the dilemma would be like for you then, sitting in the editor's chair, one of our fantastic journalists on the Byline Times, perhaps Sam Bright or Sean Norris comes up with a story that they have had leaked, a story that you know would make headlines all across the UK, maybe around the world, but it's been obtained from an official source. 
you as the editor would run the risk of being imprisoned. The journalist would run the risk of being imprisoned. And the whistleblower, if they were identified, would run the risk of being imprisoned for up to 14 years. From a, an editor's point of view, I guess you'd have to be foolhardy in those circumstances or extremely brave to say, publish and be damned. Mm, absolutely. I mean, it definitely would make the entire process of public interest journalism, you know, much, much harder because these are very serious penalties. You know, 14 years in prison from within a, an environment that's been created, which I say is hostile to journalists, especially independent investigative journalists. There is a punitive environment being created in this country around that. And within that context, and now this proposed change to the law, absolutely, it would be a nightmare to think we could do all the legal checks, we could get the story up to all of the the very high standards. And it's a story that should be out there. You know, it's absolutely in the public interest. And yet, this does change the state of play, I think. As you say, it would be written into law that public interest is not a defence and therefore the very likely possibility that, as you say, reporters, editors, whistleblowers, sources could find themselves in court. It's not something anyone wants hanging over their heads, you know, going into to work of a morning. And, and I think that is, you know, typifies, as I said, the, the draconian atmosphere that's being created around independent investigative journalism in Britain. But curiously, when I first heard about these plans, and obviously the consultation that the government was launched around it closed uh, just a few days ago, I wasn't surprised. One, because of what we've seen from Boris Johnson's government, and as I said, cloaking sort of a clampdown on rights in the language of freedom and protection. So again, these new proposals, it's all about protecting Britain in terms of its national security. I wasn't sort of surprised about that because we've seen that going on as well with regards to policing and protests, for example. And I also wasn't surprised because when you look at the British state and the heart of it, really, it operates on secrets. And I would recommend a really good book by Ian Cobain on this, The History Thieves, I think it's called, which has a lot of information about the history of the Official Secrets Act and just more widely how the British state is predicated on secrecy. And I think the most pertinent example that always comes into my mind is Operation Legacy. So as Britain's former colonies were gaining their independence, there was a state-sanctioned process by which many, many, many papers were destroyed in various sort of buildings around the world. Uh, some of these archives were transferred uh, to, to Britain. They're still sort of held very secretively. People aren't given access to them in general. But there was this deliberate destruction of information to maintain a secrecy around what had gone on in the British Empire, you know, to save the blushes, essentially, of people who were administering it. And in that sense, I think that this is just another sort of point on that path of maintaining a secretive state in order to control the population at large. But what's alarming now is, as Marion says, it's extending quite far into a realm that historically juries, judgment by one's peers, has considered in the public interest. But 
if that goes, it's a really big move into an area which has previously been protected by the public. Just thinking, this isn't always black and white, is it? One thinks of Julian Assange and the WikiLeaks dump, if you like, of information in the public domain. You think of Edward Snowden, who leaked highly classified information from the National Security Agency, and US officials said that he had done grave damage to US intelligence capabilities. Now, Snowden and Assange, in their different ways, no doubt, sincerely believed that what they were doing was right. But that does not obviate the possibility that they were doing harm to national security in different countries around the world. And surely a state has the right to protect itself and its citizens from having secrets which could harm the population. Surely it has the right to defend itself against those kind of leaks. Well, that's an argument for responsible journalism. (laughs) Uh, And I think the problem with Julian Assange and WikiLeaks really started after his original dealings with New York Times, Guardian, etc., where good journalists were looking through that material and making sure that the important material got out there, but that nothing was done which could risk lives or anything like that. I mean, I think that's not an argument for banging up whistleblowers for 14 years, It's an argument for us all being part of a process of really good investigative journalism, really looking into things and making use of those sources in in that way. You've got to remember that most murderers don't go to prison for 14 years. Most rapists don't go to prison for 14 years. Most drunk drivers who wipe out a family in another car coming the other way, they don't go to prison for 14 years. This is really, really serious stuff. And If there was a requirement, for instance, in the new Official Secrets Act that you had to show that damage had been done, then that would be much more pertinent. But in fact, there is no such requirement, even at the moment. You don't have to show that real damage has been done in some way. Mm -hmm. Now, I raise those examples just to illustrate the fact that I suppose that this is not a black and white situation. But what you're suggesting is that you'd be happy to leave it to the courts effectively to arbitrate whether a particular incident of whistleblowing was in the public interest. Exactly. That's all we're asking for. And uh, if, for instance, somebody has leaked something in order to get a commercial advantage in some way to sell shares in something or whatever on the basis of inside government information, well, of course, people should be convicted for that. That is something, what is in the public interest, that a court is perfectly capable of deciding. A jury can make that decision. You know, we put it in the hands of 12 people like ourselves on that jury to come up with a good idea of whether what we did was in the public interest. What this will do will intimidate people so that they will not blow the whistle when they see real wrongdoing going on around them in government departments, inside the armed services, etc., And that effect is probably in some ways the most important thing about this. We won't know how bad it is till it actually gets tested in court, but it will intimidate people from telling the public through us what has happened. One doesn't want to over-egg this, but is it an exaggeration to say that this is how fascism starts? Yes, it's an exaggeration to say that. It's very tempting to to start shouting Hitler. Uh, (laughs) But no, it's extremely worrying. When you see the pattern of legislation that's coming in, it's a move towards authoritarianism. 
it's uh, part of a trend that unfortunately we see in Hungary, we saw in America and until the last election, an attempt to crush protest, to crush dissent, to crush people who want to tell a different story from the story that the government wants to tell. And investigative journalists, it's in their nature to try and scrutinise the government, find out what it's doing that it doesn't want us to know, find out the wrongdoings that it is doing that they don't want us to discover. So we are the enemy. You know, we're the enemy within. So these are all methods that are being used to deal with any form of dissent, whether it's protests on the streets or headlines in newspapers, which would embarrass or inconvenience a government that really doesn't want to be scrutinised. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think it's a demonstration of how powerful investigative journalism is at its best. You know, I think the reason why this is happening now is, as Marion says, any dissent is being clamped down on. But investigative journalism has revealed quite a lot, I would say, in the past year, especially with regards to the coronavirus, about some of the dealings of this government in various ways, you know, not just the PPE scandal, we're talking about sort of herd immunity, Matt Hancock's recent resignation. I think it remains one of the most prominent tools which people in power fear. And I think in this country, our independent investigative journalism sector is actually thriving now. I really think it is. And I think that is very worrying to the government. And so, unfortunately, it's not all that surprising that these new attempts to restrict what we do are being made. But it also shows why anyone who cares about investigative journalism, you know, not just journalists and editors and news organisations, but anyone who believes that a democracy has to have uh, an antidote in the form of a free, independent and investigative press. I think we all need to come together and make that clear, because if we don't, this law will be passed. And like Marion, I'm very concerned about what that might mean for us. And that's a very real worry. I agree with Hardy that byline, you know, democracy now, the Bureau, there is a very vigorous and strong independent investigative journalism industry in Britain at the moment. It is very healthy. And this will make it more difficult for us to do our job and keep scrutiny over powerful people. Myrian Jones with Hardeep Matharu. Of course, if you don't like this proposed new law, you can always turn up at the ballot box and kick out those responsible in an election. That's what living in a democracy is all about, right? Well, yes, except that the government is also proposing to introduce a requirement for photo ID at the voting booth. And this is likely to have a massive deterrent effect on older people, those with disabilities, the homeless and other marginalised groups. Research by the Cabinet Office suggests more than 2 million people currently lack the forms of ID that would be required under the bill. Now, malpractice does sometimes happen. A High Court judge compared my home city of Birmingham to a banana republic after a vote-rigging scandal in 2005, and the 2014 mayoral election at Tower Hamlets in London was overturned for the same reason. But in the UK, there have been just three convictions for voter fraud since 2015. And the plans have been criticised by an array of organisations, including the Electoral Reform Society. 
I've been speaking to the Director of Policy and Research, Jess Garland. The problem with voter ID, and it's something that's come through from other countries, the sorts of problems that can arise with it. Um, You need to look to the United States where these types of policies have ended up in the courts. They're so controversial because they discriminate and they discriminate in ways that aren't equal across society. So by asking people to bring along a photographic ID, you're already discriminating some of the hardest hit groups in society. You know, you have to pay for a passport, you have to pay for a driving licence. So effectively, by requiring people to bring those types of ID to the polling station in order to exercise their democratic rights, you're basically putting up a paywall around the ballot box. Is it really that difficult, though, to get hold of ID, even if you haven't got a passport or a driving licence? Well, there's not that many free IDs. Other countries obviously would require people to carry them around as a matter of course, but we don't in the UK. And and the most common forms of ID do require people to pay for them. The government is saying, look, we'll give free ID cards. That's an absolute minimum that they should be doing. Just because they're available free doesn't mean they're actually free for people. You know, you've got to get yourself perhaps to the council office during working hours. You've got to get the bus there. It's sort of putting up an extra hassle for people in order to be able to do what should be fairly straightforward and just go and vote. And we know from the government's own research that of people who said that they don't have a form of photo ID, 42% of those said they would be either unlikely or very unlikely to go and apply for a free elector card. So clearly... There's going to be a problem making sure that everyone can get to the ballot box. And actually, we know from the government's pilots of this proposal that lots of people did turn up without ID and then subsequently didn't come back with the right ID. Across those pilots, it was close to a thousand people who turned up without ID and didn't subsequently return to vote. So, you know, if you do that in a general election, that's going to be loads of people who just can't exercise their democratic rights. I know that there is a disproportionate effect likely on people of colour as well, on ethnic minorities. That's certainly what we've seen from the United States. And three of the leading civil rights groups there actually warned of how damaging these proposals could be in the UK. And actually, when you look at the statistics here, both from the Electoral Commission and the government themselves, it's people who are unemployed, it's people living in council housing, it's people with disabilities, and and actually older voters as well who are, are likely to be impacted. So there's quite a broad range of people who could really find themselves in a difficult situation. And of course, for everybody, it's just an additional thing that you have to try and build into getting to the polling station. So there's also that sort of chilling effect. Will people just not turn up because it's one additional hoop for them to jump through and an unnecessary one as well? In Northern Ireland, voter ID has been compulsory for a number of years. Why is Britain different from Northern Ireland? Well, it's important to understand the sort of historical context there. There was very high levels of recorded impersonation fraud in Northern Ireland. So this was a move to address an actual problem. But even when the ID was first brought in, it didn't move to the strictest form of ID straight away. That was phased in later on. So a different situation to what we have here, where there's really no evidence of widespread voter fraud at all of this impersonation type. So the government's bringing something in to solve a problem that doesn't really exist. And they've said that themselves. They know that they can't justify this on the basis of any evidence of fraud. So we heard the Prime Minister at 
PMQs the other week saying, well, this is about people's suspicion of fraud. But again, that's questionable when we've seen from the Electoral Commission that actually people's confidence in elections, and particularly in voting at the polling station, is at the highest ever levels. 90% of people saying that they're confident that voting in the polling station is safe. So that there's a real risk here of kind of talking up fraud and thereby doing a real disservice to democracy in the process. Why do you think the government's so keen to introduce it? It's really hard to see why. As I said, there isn't really a a justification in the evidence of of why you would need this. So you have to look elsewhere. And, and, you know, this is quite an expensive policy to introduce. And clearly we're in a situation in the country right now where there are lots of other priorities and lots of other financial priorities. So really hard to see why they would be introducing it. And we've seen in the United States, this has been used as a, a tool of vote suppression. And, you know, you really hope the government isn't going down that road. No, but that's the allegation, isn't it? I know that the Labour MP, Cat Smith, the shadow democracy minister, has said the policy amounts to US-style voter suppression. Is, is that what the effect would be, whatever the intention is? I think that definitely is a big risk. And also that would be a huge gamble for the government. I think when you look at the types of voters that might be affected, it's it's also people who would be voting for the government's party. So a huge misstep if that is the plan. But it is hard to see why on earth you would bring in this policy for any other reason. It's not just voter ID that you're concerned about either. No, this elections bill that's come in in the last few weeks has a whole range of measures which which are troubling. Um, There's proposals in there to allow Parliament to set the priorities of our independent elections regulator, the, the Electoral Commission. That's very worrying. And especially as we see actually under this administration for the first time ever, the parliamentary committee that scrutinises the electoral commission has governing party majority. It's troubling in itself. That's a committee that historically had party balance. For obvious reasons, this is the regulator that's kind of regulating what the politicians are doing and what campaigners are doing. So we're seeing a real power grab there in terms of the electoral commission's independence. Lots of worrying stuff there. And also lots of changes to how people campaign around election time. And that's worrying a lot of the third sector. A lot of charities are hugely concerned about how that might affect their freedoms to campaign on the issues that they care about as well. A few years back, there was new legislation around what's called third party campaigners. And what that legislation did was capture a lot of charities who were going about their campaigns and put new restrictions on them in terms of what they need to report. And there's some good stuff there. It is important that we know who's saying what to whom. And we've seen a huge amount of money being spent in online campaigns around elections. So there certainly is a troubling area. But what a lot of third sector organisations are saying is this is going to really affect how we go about doing our ordinary campaigning. So when you add all that together, the voter ID kind of affecting who is able to vote, the power grab over the Electoral Commission, our independent body that's supposed to regulate elections, and also new restrictions on who's allowed to do what sort of campaigning, that all adds up, I think, to quite a troubling picture. On the Byline Times podcast, we have been identifying what we regard as an authoritarian creep Is it too much to say that we are heading down an authoritarian path? No, I don't think that's too much to say at all. I would certainly describe some of these moves as democratic backsliding. And we've certainly seen that over the last few years. And I do think this elections bill in total does look like a very worrying step towards taking away some of the freedoms and the fairness in our elections. 
Jess Garland from the Electoral Reform Society. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.